invite you to open your Bible with me tonight to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. In your bulletin it says, the title is The Incredible Glory of the Church. And uh, that is no longer the title. We're, uh, there's just too much in this text to um, bring it all out, I think, to do justice to it in, in one message. So this evening we're going to look at the incredible beauty of Jesus. And to just focus our thoughts uh, tonight on the cornerstone. Uh, this one who is rejected by men, but chosen and precious to God. And then, Lord willing, the next time we'll look at uh, specifically verse uh, 5 in chapter 2. Let's, let's pick it up. Uh, I'm going to begin reading it at chapter 122, just so we get a sense of the flow. And we'll read through chapter 2, verse 8. Peter writes, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word to us tonight. God in heaven, we thank you that uh, you delight to speak to us through your word. We thank you for this imperishable word of God. We thank you for the good news that can be preached, and we thank you that in it we taste the goodness of God in its milk by which we can grow. So Lord, may we grow tonight. Show us Jesus. That's our heart's desire. Show us Jesus in his beauty, in his goodness the rock upon which we stand. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last week as we uh, came to our text, we noted that the command that Peter gives is uh, to crave or long for pure spiritual uh, milk. And we noted that the spiritual milk that we are to, uh, to crave like newborn infants is the goodness of God revealed to us in the gospel. Uh, the milk of a believer is... All the goodness of God that we find in Scripture when we see a Jesus revealed there to us in the gospel. Uh, we find there a righteousness that is sufficient for our justification. And we find there a power that's great enough for our sanctification and a victory that goes deep enough for our glorification for us and those we love. And that's the goodness of God that we drink together. And as we drink that 
milk of God's goodness revealed in the scriptures and in the gospel, Paul, uh, Peter says that, that in that we grow up in salvation. We, we grow into a more and more assured conviction that these things are true. All that Christ is for us. And we, and we have an increasing experience of all that he's accomplished for us. And so the, the truth of the gospel, the milk of the gospel, is molding us into the image and transforming us into the likeness of Christ. And uh, those are all things that need to happen if you're going to be a Christian. You cannot be a Christian and not, like a newborn babe, crave or long for spiritual milk. Or you can't be a Christian and not drink the goodness of God. You, you can't be a Christian and, and have failed to have tasted God's goodness to you in Jesus. It needs to happen to you. And no one can do it for you. No one can drink the pure spiritual milk. You need to do it. You need to come to the Word. You need to go to the Gospel. You need to see Jesus and deal with Jesus as He is, as He's presented for you and your sin. And as you come to Jesus in faith, you will experience then God's goodness. You will taste God's goodness in the gospel for you, and you'll grow. So all those things need to happen to every individual person individually as they come to Christ. But now Paul, in a sense, uh, takes the, the, the camera lens and zooms out. You have a camera with a with a zoom lens. Uh, you can uh, you can focus on one very specific thing, maybe one specific flower. But then, if you zoom the lens out, suddenly you'll see that that one specific flower is in a whole field of flowers, and and behind the flowers is the the beauty of the mountain range. You see the whole panorama, and, and that's what Paul is uh, Peter is doing in our text tonight. He's been focusing on the flower of a Christian and and God's call for that believer to to set their hope on the grace to be given to them and to be holy as God is holy and to love one another earnestly from a, from a pure heart. But now he, he, he zooms back and we see that this flower is in a whole field of flowers, that this, uh, this individual Christian exists among a whole body of believers. And it's one living, this person is one living stone being built with all these other living stones into the temple of God's house. And, and, and the zoom lens goes back further and we see behind uh, the field of flowers stand the mountain range of God's saving purposes. That God had a plan in Jesus for the church. A plan before time began. And so Paul wants Peter, excuse me, I keep saying Paul. If I just say Paul tonight, just know that I mean Peter. Peter um, wants us to see the big, wonderful context. If you're a Christian, you don't just exist as a flower in God's field. You exist with all of the other flowers, and behind you stands the eternal purposes of God. Now the Christians that Peter's writing to need to know how much they matter. They need to know their context. They need to know that they are the fruit of God's glorious purposes in Jesus Christ because, you see, they live in a world where they are universally uh, despised. No one likes the Christians. They're hated by the Jews, persecuted by the Jews, derided by the Gentiles. They're mocked by former friends. They're disowned by their own families. They, they're just despised and rejected in all the world, and you would... You, you could see how they would begin to wonder if maybe they've taken a misstep. Maybe, maybe Jesus isn't what the apostles had said. 
I mean, why is the church so small and struggling and so hated in the world? I mean, they're nothing compared to the religions they see around them. All the other uh, ancient religions around them, they're just They've got these big, majestic temples of of marble and and ivory and elaborate wood. They've got these beautiful ceremonies, ornately robed priests, masterfully crafted idols. They have power and influence in the community. All these other religions matter. Socially speaking, they matter. And the church has none of those things. No temples, no elaborate ceremonies. No ornately robed priests, no beautiful idols, no influence in the halls of power. I mean, to the human eye, they could not have mattered less. They are the, the off-scouring of the world. They couldn't matter less. But Peter wants them to know, in truth, nothing matters in all the world more than the church of Jesus Christ because the church is the people of Christ. The church is built on the foundation of Christ. The church is what God is doing in the world as he's building these living stones and making them his temple. But if you're going to understand the beauty and the value of the church, you have to start with the beauty and the value of Jesus. And so Peter goes into an extended uh, time here of explaining the glory of Jesus. And so we'll look at first the reality of Jesus. We're going to see that he's a living stone, a rejected stone, and a divinely chosen stone. Those will be the three things we look at as we look at Christ. A living stone, a rejected stone, and a divinely chosen stone. So Peter says, as you come to him, a living stone. Both of those phrases, living and stone, uh, have significance. He is a living stone. Stone. That, that image probably doesn't resonate much with you. It just maybe sounds odd. Stones that you know are just dead, lifeless, inanimate, hard, cold things. It doesn't warm your heart if, if I tell you that Jesus is a living stone. But if you think about the, the cultural context of the day, all the gods of the nations around and the religions around them are represented with gods of stone. This is true in the Old Testament. It's true in Peter's day as he's writing this. The Gentile world is awash with images and idols, um, beautifully crafted, handcrafted. When Paul goes to Athens, he sees that the city is full of idols. But you see, all of these images, these idols, these gods, they're all stone, but they're all dead. And so the Old Testament prophets would, would say, you, you create these things, you craft these things, but they, they have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They're, they're, they're as dead as the people who make them. They represent the spiritual death and deadness. They, can't do, they cannot do anything. They cannot be of any help. But you see, in contrast, all the gods, all the dead, wooden, stone, lifeless, cold gods of the pagan religions, there stands in the world a living stone. Jesus, you see. And the glory of Jesus is not simply that he is alive. The glory of Jesus is that he is life. He has life in himself. We do not have as Christians images uh, that we, that we uh, look to or that we've created and crafted and that we bow down to because there's nothing there. 
It's a violation of the second commandment, but there's nothing there. We have Jesus, the living one, the one who is life, who has life in himself. He is the way and the truth and the life. John says we saw him full of, in him was life, in him was life. God sent his son into this world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have life, life. This week we experienced the the reality of death. We live in a world under the curse of death. We live with people who are powerless in the face of death. We cannot keep ourselves alive. But there is a living one. Behold, I was dead, but now am alive, Jesus says in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus alone stands as life. He is the living stone. We come to him a living, life-giving stone. But Peter wants us then to see the glory of Jesus as life, but as as a stone. He's not going to back away from this, you see, because Peter is pulling from Old Testament prophecy. Uh, The Greek had two words for stone, uh, petros, which is rock. Remember, Peter is named that. You are petros, Peter. And then the other term is lithos, which means a carved stone, a stone specifically that's been uh, carefully shaped and molded to be used in the construction of a building. If you remember in those days, wood is very scarce, so buildings are made out of stone. And, and so these expert craftsmen would take uh, cut stones uh, and put them in place and build their buildings that way, usually without mortar. The stones would be so finely cut that you just put them together and they're large so they don't move. So Peter is saying that Jesus is that. He is this living lithos, this this living stone that's been crafted and molded skillfully by the hand of God for use in the building of God's temple. And not only is he a stone, but we're going to find he's the cornerstone. He's the most important piece in the entire building. You see, when you start a building like that, uh, it's, it's critical that you get your angles all, it, everything has to be square. If one part of that stone is not square and you build your wall off from that, you're going to find that when you get to the end of the wall, even though you start off just a fraction of an inch, when you get to the end of it, you're going to be a foot off. The, the, the angles have to be absolutely perfect. Jesus is the perfectly crafted stone for God's building. But astonishingly, he's a rejected stone. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He's rejected by men. And again, the the word that Peter uses here, uh, it, it means something that is rejected after it has been carefully examined. Jesus was not thoughtlessly, casually rejected. He was rejected only after careful scrutiny and inspection. It's exactly what builders would do in that day. If you're going to use a stone, it needs to be inspected. Are the angles correct? Is there a flaw in the stone? Maybe a slight crack that over time is going to give way and the stone will will fall apart. It needs needs to be perfect, and so it would be carefully inspected. Well, when Jesus was on earth, that's exactly what the religious leaders did. They examined him. They asked him questions, continually asked him questions. They watched like a hawk everything that he did. They took note of everything that he said. 
his ministry was not carried out in hiding, in secret. It was carried out in full view of everyone. The religious leaders were there, and they carefully examined, and after careful, thorough examination, then they rejected him. Now, why? Why would they do that? Did they catch him in a lie so that they could charge him with, with speaking untruth? No, they didn't. Did they discover that he was a fraud, that the miracles were nothing but an elaborate hoax? Did they uncover some secret sin in his life that, was, that uh, evidenced him to be a fake? No, of course, it wasn't any of those things. All of his words rang true. Everyone who listened said, we've never heard anyone like this. They were amazed at the words that came out of his mouth. All of his miracles were irrevocable, irrefutable evidences of his deity, that he was who he said he was. In fact, the people would say, who could do this if it were not for God? He was officially declared by Pilate to be without fault. And yet they rejected him. They examined him and then they judged him unfit and unworthy for use in building God's kingdom. And friends, people do exactly the same today. Men continually reject Jesus as the Messiah. People will examine Christ. They'll, they'll say, I, I read the Bible cover to cover. I've considered him. But I do not find it compelling. He is the great rejected one of men. As long as this world endures, Jesus will be despised and rejected by men. Peter doesn't back away from you. See, the early church is wondering, why, why is this the case? And Peter says, it's always been the case. This Jesus is a rejected one. But this very one who is incredibly, universally rejected by men after their examination, he is the one eternally approved and chosen of God. And Peter just pounds on that. He is the great chosen one of God, verse 4, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Verse 6, it stands in Scripture, Behold, I, God says, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Verse 7, the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. The very one whom men defiantly cast aside, God says, that's my cornerstone. The one they rejected and crucified as being unfit and unworthy as a blasphemer. God says, this is my chosen and precious one. You see, God is a master builder. And he's, as he is preparing to build his eternal habitation, his dwelling place. We'll get to that hopefully next time we come to this text. He looked for one that would be fit to be the cornerstone. The one upon whom the whole edifice could be in, uh, put together. It's the most essential piece. And of course, as he looks among men to see if there are any who are righteous, any who are worthy, there's no one who's worthy. There's no one, you see, who has not fallen short of the glory of God. And, and so God in eternity past, he points to his son Jesus. And Jesus is asked to be the cornerstone of God's eternal temple. He's the perfect stone. There's no blot in him. There's no flaw whatsoever. There's no false angle. He's perfect in every way. Perfectly suited for the task 
of building God's spiritual house. And, and so he is precious to God. It, it's just so astonishing. Uh, so, um, just powerful that the only time in the gospel when, the, when God the Father speaks, it's when he is saying, this is my son. At Jesus' baptism, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He is my precious one. You see, men and God differ, don't they? I'm the person of Jesus Christ. This is the great contention between God and men. Who is Jesus? And is he valuable? Is he worthy? And men say no, and God says, yes, he's my chosen one. He's my precious one. And on Jesus, God builds his temple. And so that has ramifications. And Peter points them out for those who believe and for those who don't believe. It means honor for those who believe. Verse 7, the honor is for you who believe. The honor, that is a word that we don't use that often. There, or maybe we don't experience that, that often. We don't have um, a culture of honor where, where good, certain things are just held in high esteem, high value. We live in, we live in a culture that seems to delight in dishonor. But but if you, if you experience honor, real honor, when, when uh, proper respect is shown to things that are worthy of respect, you sense that there's something good and true about honor, that, that there, there's something within you that corresponds to that. Peter says that there is honor, honor for Christians. Honor for those who believe. What is the honor? Well, there's the honor of being made a living stone in verse 5. He says, you, yourselves, like living stones. So every believer becomes a living lithos after Jesus Christ. We're united to him. His life flows through us. Everyone who comes to Jesus has life. John 5, 25, truly I say to you, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. They will live. Peter rejoices in that truth that dead people have become living stones being carefully crafted by God's own hand to be placed into his temple and useful there. And Lord willing, we'll look at that again the next time we come back to the text. But I believe that the honor that Peter particularly has in mind reflects what he just said in verse 6. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You see, shame is the opposite of honor. It's to, to, to be shamed uh, involves a, a sense of being found to be a fraud. That, that you're not what you said you were or, or that you, there's a failure, a flaw somewhere in you that, that does not deserve honor, deserves dishonor. But the idea of being shamed in the Bible is not just being found to be a fraud or, or being exposed with shameful things attached to you, shameful thoughts and actions and deeds, but the idea of shame uh, also relates to the idea of being a fool. That you, you, you wasted your life, you lived for the wrong things, and specifically, you put your trust in something that could not, could not keep you uh, alive. You, whatever you trusted in has failed you. And you've been a fool, the rich man Jesus just talked about who, who wanted to build bigger barns because his life was his possessions and he needed, he needed to protect his possessions so he could have ease in his life. And, and, and God says, you fool. 
This very night, your life will be required of you. And so shame, you see, it involves being trusting in something and, and being a fool because of because whatever you trusted let you down. It could not hold you up. So the Israelites were shamed when they trusted in Baal, and Baal was unable to rescue them from the wrath of God, or they'd run to Egypt, and Egypt couldn't protect them from the Assyrians. But Peter says, for those who believe in him, Jesus Christ, those who believe in Christ will never, ever be put to shame. They'll never be exposed as a fraud or a fool. Even though we've done wicked, shameful things, our, our sins are pardoned, washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. They can never condemn us. They can never shame us. And when the day of judgment comes, you see, what we've, what we've put our trust in, that trust will be vindicated. Even though in this world it looks foolish, why would you, why would you give up the, the potential to enjoy the things of this world and just serve yourself and get what you can get? Why would you give that up for this person who lived back in the dark ages someplace? A good teacher, no doubt, but, but you're willing to, to suffer for him? You're willing to, to give up things for him? You're willing even to die for, for him? A Jew crucified by his own people because they didn't like him? But you see, on the last day when this Jesus is revealed in all of his glory, then everyone who's put their trust in Jesus will be vindicated. Piper says here, the point is, is that if you trust Christ, God's cornerstone, you will not be disappointed. This stone will not prove faulty. If you build your life on this stone, your life will not crumble in the storm. If you hide behind this stone, you will be safe. If you stand on the truth of this stone, you will not be ashamed. If you join with others in the spiritual house built on this stone, you will be proud of your foundation and your fellowship will stand. The world would look at your life and as they did the early church and as they do the church today, they just see, they just see foolishness. You got two guys building a house and one's, uh, one is getting right along. His, uh, the walls are going up. He's, he's uh, quickly putting it together and it seems to be a fine house. And the other fellow just keeps digging around on the ground. It's taking him forever. He's laying a foundation. Why would you lay a foundation when it, it sunshines every day? And then the storm comes. And the one man's life is found to be built on nothing but sand. And the other man's house is found to be built on the rock. And so that's what Peter means. That in the day of judgment, those who trusted in Jesus will not be put to shame. Those who put their hope in Jesus will not be disappointed. You stand on Christ, you will stand. That's the great honor, the blessedness that comes to those who come to Jesus. But for those who reject him, for those who do not believe, verse 7, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You see, Peter's responding to this question. Why don't people believe in Jesus? Why don't they come to faith in him? Why did the religious leaders of the Jews, the people who had the Torah, the people who knew the word of God, why did they reject Jesus? Why does the world hate Jesus? Why do people hate Jesus today? Why do they use his name as a curse word? I've never heard anyone use the name of Muhammad, ever. I've never heard anyone swear by the name of Buddha or Confucius or any other religious leader, ever. 
And yes, people will say Jesus Christ in, in, uh, in, in cursing. As flippantly as, as, as they say, it, it's, it's just the acceptable swear word. Jesus Christ as a curse word. Why? Is it because they found a fault in Jesus that they, they can point to something, to some reason he should be reviled? Of course there's no fault. Peter tells us why. It's because they disobey the word. They disobey the word. What does that mean? Well, primarily it means that they refuse to find their righteousness in Christ. I'd like you to turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 9. Peter, uh, Paul, is dealing with the exact same issue. Romans chapter 9. He's dealing with this precise question in Romans 9 and 10. If Jesus really is God's chosen cornerstone, why did Israel reject him? How do you make sense of that? The people who knew their Bibles, the people who knew the prophecies, why did they reject him? If you look at Romans chapter 9, he'll say, uh, first he begins with the grief that he has because of Israel's rejection. Then in verse 6, is it because the word of God failed? Did God promise to save Israel and now that promise of God is, has failed? And he deals with that in the next following verses. That, that, that can't be. Well, what about verse 14? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But then he goes again to verse 30. What shall we say then? How do, we, how do we resolve this? That people don't come, Jews and Gentiles. Well, the Gentiles actually were coming. So he says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Friends, do you know the core offense of Christ is in the world? Do you know what the core offense is? It's not that they disagree with his teaching. Most people will applaud his teaching. The core offense is that he has the audacity to say that we cannot save ourselves, that our good intentions and our sincere efforts are not enough before the throne of God, that our religion is powerless to make us right before God. Jesus has the audacity to tell good people that they are going to hell unless they repent and cast themselves upon him in faith. He has the audacity to say that he is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through him. And men are offended at the notion. They're offended to hear that there's nothing they can do 
to gain the favor of God, that, they, that, that somehow they have to, to humble themselves and confess that their, their utter inability, they've got to declare spiritual bankruptcy, and then they have to go to Jesus, and they're not going to do it. You see, the, the reality of human rebellion is that it goes all the way down, and men truly would rather be damned in their pride than be saved through humility. If that's the way it is, forget it. I'll do it my way. And that becomes, of course, the great sinner's hymn, isn't it? Frank Sinatra sings, Now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. And more, much more than this, much more than this, I did it my way. For what is man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Yes, I did it my way. And the audience erupts. That's the rebel's creed. But there's a tragic, tragic irony in the sinner's hymn. Peter says they disobeyed the word. They would not have the righteousness that comes by faith. They couldn't have it on the basis of their good intentions or trying their hardest or just being what they were, uh, then forget it. They disobeyed the word, but Peter says this, as they were destined to do. That's, a, that's an astounding thought. See, what it means is that even man in his greatest rebellion cannot escape God's sovereign purpose. Men rebel, you see, because they want to oppose God. They want to refute God. One of the reasons that this movement to destroy babies, why destroy babies? Because God gives life. Why this, why this passion to, to reinvent gender? Because God assigns gender. And who gives him the right? I'll determine my morality. I'll determine my agenda. I'll determine my gender, right? I will do it my way. And who is God to refuse me? Who is God to thwart me? See, man wants to exalt his own autonomy. That means hell, so be it. They'll ignore all common sense and violate all common decency and demand that they be applauded and respected for doing so. They will do it their way. But this is what Peter says. At the end, when they face, you see, the sovereign Lord, they will realize that everything they did they were destined to do, you see. They were destined to do. In the end, they did it his way. Do you understand that? In the end, they did it, they did it his way. Piper says the point is if you believe on this stone, you cannot lose. And if you disbelieve in him, you cannot win. Human unbelief does not frustrate or defeat the ultimate purposes of God. The stone which the builders rejected has become the very cornerstone. You're not going to reject the purposes of God by rejecting Jesus, and you're not going to reject the purposes of God by pursuing your righteousness, your way. God be damned. The Bible says, Peter says, it's what you were destined to do. You did it God's way. You have here, and we don't have time to get into it, the truth of compatibilism, it's called. <clears throat> People wrestle with, are men free 
If God sovereignly ordains everything that's going to come to pass, if God determines, are men still free? And uh, yeah, they are, and they're both true, aren't they? See, people say that's absolute foolishness. You can't both have a, a free moral agent and have a God who destines things. Either God destines and we're robots, or God doesn't destines and we have free moral agency. But Peter says, no, it, it's both. See, people say, I believe in free will, and I say, I believe in free will too, but that means that, that I freely choose what God has destined me to choose. And I don't know how that all works out, but all I can say is this, is that if, you're, if your doctrine of free will means that God has not destined, that God is not sovereign, you see, then whatever your doctrine is, it's not the doctrine of Peter or Paul or of Scripture. C.S. Lewis once said, we all serve God inevitably. We all serve God inevitably. But it makes a great difference whether you serve like Judas or serve like John. Both of them destined, both of them choosing. And so the question comes to you tonight, and we'll wrap up. Which will it be for you? What is it? You will inevitably serve God. Your, your life will inevitably be right God's way. But it will be like Judas or it will be like John. Here's the critical issue, the critical determining factor. We find it right at the beginning of the text. As you come to him. As you come to him. That makes all the difference. That's the, that's the critical determining issue. And it, it's an ongoing action. The, the, the idea of coming to Jesus, pros is the, is the Greek word. It, it means coming to worship, coming to offer yourself, coming to abide with him, coming to remain in him, coming to feed upon him, coming to Jesus so that Jesus becomes your life, your way, and your truth. And it's something that Christians do all the time, you see, because we are prone to wander. We know that's true of ourselves. And we're prone to bow down to idols of stick and stone and, and treasures and pleasures that are here on this earth. But, but a Christian, you see, will continually go back and come to Jesus and come to him because he, he's the only place that there is life. Where else should we go? The, who else has the words of eternal life, Peter says. As you come to Jesus, you, see, you find that he is the living stone. As you come to Jesus, you find that you are being made living stones. As you come to Jesus, you find that you are agreeing with God. He is chosen and he's precious. But you need to come to Jesus. And we need to call the world to come to Jesus. This is Christ's own invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Revelation 22, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Isn't that a wonderful invitation? Have you, have you acknowledged it? Have you responded to it? Are you finding the milk of the gospel to be Sweet to your taste as, as you come to Jesus. No one who comes to him will ever be put to shame. No one who comes to Jesus will be put to shame. The hymn that Billy Graham used um, at his crusades um, was just reflecting with some of the guys here. Thousands and thousands of people right, came to Christ, came to this chosen precious cornerstone with the words of just as I am without one plea. I got nothing. I got nothing. But that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come. 
I pray that is what you're doing in your life. Day after day, coming to Jesus, tasting his goodness, trusting the confidence that you will not be put to shame. May God grant it. Let's bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that he's precious. I thank you that he's the chosen one. I thank you that he is more glorious than we know. And I thank you that Jesus invites us to come to him. It all begins with Jesus. We cannot have a Christian life apart from Christ. We cannot find life where he is not. But Father, some of, well, we are all prone to want to establish our own righteousness. We hate the fact that we're so helpless. We'd like to think, some of us, that our religion, our good intentions, the, the moral things that we do ought to be sufficient. And so we seek to establish a righteousness of our own by the works of the law, and we stumble over Christ. Father, I, I pray that tonight you would give us the, the gladness to come to Jesus again with all of our bankruptcy and brokenness, all of our inability, and to find him to be our life, to find him to be that precious cornerstone, the rock that will not be shaken, the rock in which we can hide, the rock on which we can stand. Father, I, I just pray you would direct our hearts and minds to Jesus, that we would love him that we would love him, that we would stand in him. May you grant it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.